Welcome to our 25th episode of Spurbs Herbs. That's a lot of episodes. I didn't, you know, I had planned a lot, but I, you know, it's a lot of work. So I'm surprised we got this far. But today's a really interesting one. We're doing a couple really neat things today. We're going to talk about those in just a minute, but I wanted to say thank you very much for joining us. And without further ado, let's get into it. We got a lot to cover today, so let's get into it. So today is our 25th episode, and we're going to do some special things. The first thing is we are finally going to talk about chi, what it is and isn't. I've been talking about chi and referring to chi in these Spurs podcasts, but I have not actually told you what chi is. And so we're finally going to talk about it, what it is, what it isn't, philosophically, physically, maybe even spiritually. So we're going to get into the whole thing about chi, or at least begin that conversation as we'll see what's going on. And then we're going to talk about using formulas. We've had, we've discussed many formulas in our episodes, uh, uh, but we have not really talked about how to use them. And we will be remedying that right now. So let's get going without further ado and talk about chi. But before we do... Let's talk about uh, sponsors. If you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for California Acupuncture Board Continuing Education Units and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine Professional Development Activities at a reasonable cost. And you can check us out at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. Org, and you get all of these for cheap CEUs and PDAs. I have also written a couple of books, Integrative Pharmacology, Combining Modern Pharmacology with Integrative Medicine, and Playing the Game, a Step-by-Step Guide to Accepting Insurance as an Acupuncturist. And both of these are available at the shop at www.spurbsherbs.com. There we go. Commercial messages out of the way. <coughs> Let's get into our discussion of chi. So we spent some time discussing skeptics in our 21st episode on the formula siwutang, or four substance decoction. And that is relevant here when we start to discuss chi. Chi has lots of skeptics because it is esoteric, somewhat spiritual, and difficult to understand. But it is something that you can feel and experience if you do proper trainings. First, let's get into the concept of chi from a historical and linguistic place. But before we get into this discussion, a warning. I used to teach this to the first class in the master's program in Chinese medicine. I actually have someone, I think, uh, who was in that class uh, when I was teaching that a while ago, uh, listening right now. And I would always say we're going to discuss chi for the next hour or so. And then you will spend the rest of your career and life truly understanding it. In other words, these are difficult concepts with many layers of understandings. All we can hope to do here in 15 or 20 minutes is kind of introduce some of these concepts. It is a journey, not a destination. And by the same token, I may understand the concept of chi to a certain level, but I'm still on my journey and may not understand every aspect. So what I'm saying uh, today, I might disagree with myself in a couple of years. So that's sort of the nature of this. So kind of keep that in the mind as we're, we're talking about this. On the other hand, maybe it is super simple and we just tend to make it more complex. So maybe I'm over, you know, over 
uh, complexizing, yes, I made up that word, complexizing this concept. So let's get into it. Let's see what we got. So let's start with a little Chinese language lesson. A Chinese language, and, and it's important in the concept of Qi, the, the Chinese language is a graphic language made up of ideograms or characters, either word, you know, they, the, both words are kind of used interchangeably. Ideograms are made up of specific brush strokes that make up radicals and different radicals, and either singular or plural, make up an ideogram or character. And radicals themselves can indicate sounds or have specific meanings or just something historical sometimes. It doesn't really have anything relevant to add to, to the, uh, the character uh, in modern day. In addition, when Mao Zedong took over China, in uh, 1949, he realized there was a lot of illiteracy in the population. And so his response was to simplify some of the, the characters that were ancient traditional characters. And now there are simplified characters and traditional characters. So now when you learn a Chinese word, quote unquote word, you have to learn the, the ideogram or character for that word. You usually, uh, us as, as um, people who are from Latinized uh, languages, uh, have to learn something called the pinyin, which is the Latinization of that character, and it helps us pronounce that word. You also need to learn tone marks. And if you really want to do things now, you need to not only learn the traditional character, but you also have to learn the simplified character. And so there's a lot of learning. It's, it, in my experience, it's a relatively straightforward language, but there's a lot to memorize with it. So seems complex and it's it's just because of the the characters i think and so now we we start to get into chi and the character for chi has both a simplified the simplified and traditional ideogram for it so uh, there's two different ways to write chi and it means exactly the same thing what is nice about this is this simplified character of chi is actually a single radical of the traditional character and does not involve any changes of strokes often when they went from traditional uh, ideograms to simplified ideograms, they would simplify the brush strokes instead of being, they, they count brush strokes. That's one of the ways you actually look something up in, in, in dictionary. So instead of 10 brush strokes, now it's only uh, six brush strokes. And so that would be one way they would simplify it. So they change the brush, so they simplify the brush strokes. But um, with Qi, they didn't do that. They, they just said, okay, we're just gonna eliminate this one radical and keep the other radical. And that's now the new simplified version. So we're gonna talk about both right now. So the simplified character for chi is a, uh, I'm going to describe it. There's a picture if you have the video in front of you, but the, it, it is a vertical stroke in the top left corner and then a horizontal stroke coming off of that and another horizontal stroke just below that. And it's, and it, and it's sort of a unique Chinese stroke, a single stroke that starts horizontal, um, uh, it starts on the left, goes horizontal to the right, becomes vertical, goes down, curves up at the end with a little vertical hook at the end of that. So it's, it's all one stroke. It's all done in one stroke of brush or pen, pencil, whatever you're using. Um, but it is, uh, it's a complicated stroke. And this, has a this creates a character that has strokes above and to the right of the overall character. And we're going to see why that's important because there's like an empty space in um, kind of center left of this, of this character space. And this, this, like I said, this is now the simplified character for Qi, but it is also part of the traditional character. And we're going to talk about the next part, next radical, in just a, a moment. But this radical alone has a meaning 
And that mean is a representation of steam or vapor or gas coming off, you know, just in general, steam, vapor, or gas. The traditional character has the same steam radical above and to the right of another radical. And the inner radical below and to the left of the steam radical consists of six strokes. Um, so I'm going to describe them here. There is a picture of it, again, if you have the, have, are looking at the video. The first stroke is a short top left to bottom right diagonal. The second to the, to the right of this is a short top right to bottom left diagonal. The third is a hor horizontal stroke be below these two. Uh, fourth is a vertical line bisecting the horizontal one and in between these the two diagonals. And five is a diagonal stroke below the horizontal one and to the left of the vertical one from upper right to lower left. And the final stroke is a diagonal stroke to the right that is from the top left to the bottom right. Ultimately, all this together almost looks like an asterisk, like a, a star, you know, an asterisk. And this radical alone represents uncooked rice. So that's the, the me radical in this. That's what it's mi, me radical. Putting these two radicals together is where the totality of the character comes into play. It represents the, the traditional character for chi, represents the steam coming off of cooking rice. And I think this is a great beginning image for understanding chi. Chi is said to be warming, energetic, light, moving, rising, and dispersed, just like steam. If you think of all the aspects of steam, very similar to how we perceive chi. But chi is not energy. That is something I hear all the time. Chi is energy. It's energy. It's vital breath. It's all energy. It's energy. It's not energy. That is the one thing I disagree with vehemently. Just like steam, it is very energetic. It's energetic, but it's not energy. It has a lot of energetic properties, but it has substance and material just like steam does. In fact, steam powers almost everything in our society based on the fact that steam is used to power turbines which produce electricity. In other words, there wouldn't be cars, there wouldn't be trains, there wouldn't be anything in your house. Uh, this computer would not happen unless without the power, the strength of steam. And chi is the same. It has the same, it has some physicality and can do lots of work in the physics sense. In this way, steam is a really good metaphor for chi and what it can accomplish. Rice is also an important metaphor. Rice is one of the best crops based on the amount of calories that can be grown per acre. So if you grow an acre of rice, you can actually produce about 11 million calories per acre on an annual basis. And this is versus wheat, which is you know one of the main grains we have in the West. Wheat can only do 4 million calories per acre, almost a third of what rice can. So rice is really important. And why are we talking about calories? Because this is one of the reasons why China can grow and sustain a large population. This drove the China's ability to have a large population, which is its greatest strength historically. And, and even to today is this, this population. Rice historically was once 
was one of the most important economic forces in China as well. Before currency, rice was the main substance for trade. You would trade, oh, I want that, that, that wagon you did. I'll give you 10 bushels of rice for it. You know, that was how it was done. I'm, I'm maybe mixing up the history here. I doubt there's any um, chariots that were before currency, but that's sort of uh, an example of how that was worked. You know, thing, trade was done with bushels of rice, not with coinage. So in other words, rice is vital to Chinese history and society. So it's a vital substance. And that's important in our concept of qi because qi is a vital substance. If you put these two images together, what you have is a vital light substance that is very powerful and able to accomplish important work. Applied to Chinese medicine, qi is the major, quote-unquote, workhorse in the body. While biomedicine looks at blood as the vital and most important substance in the body, Chinese medicine says it is qi. Blood is still considered one of the four vital substances, along with qi and yin and yang, and is very important in Chinese medicine, but it's not quite as important as qi is in Chinese medicine. But blood is, blood is moved by qi. Qi moves along with the blood and powers the heart to circulate the qi. In other words, uh, circulate the blood. In other words, the, the heart couldn't pump unless qi was there to energize the, the heart, according to Chinese medicine. There's a saying in Chinese medicine that where the qi goes, blood follows. This relationship between blood and qi is a very tight and important one, and blood can be considered a very dense form of qi, and I like to think of this as steam condensing into water, and that's sort of what blood is. It's like the steam of qi becoming denser, and that becomes blood. So very intimate. Sometimes you can't separate the two concepts, and that's fine, but they're both very, very important. Qi must circulate to nourish and power the various organs. It does this in the meridians of the body, which form the basis for acupuncture. In acupuncture, we say that all disease, disease pretty much stems from some disturbance of qi, whether that's a stoppage of the, floor of, of the flow, if there's too much qi in one particular area, too little qi in a particular area or a particular organ. And so what we do with the acupuncture is we address that by directly tapping into the meridians that flow with qi. Now, this may sound a little esoteric, and it, 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 it is, but it's, a, it's an inherent, it, we're going to find out that this is an internally in, uh, coherent viewpoint of how the body works. It, it, from the outside, it seems a little odd. From the inside, when you start getting into this, it's very coherent and, and allows you to do predictions, and so it's very interesting. So each organ is said to have its own type of qi, that does the functions of that organ. And there are many different types of qi throughout the body that does various functions. So for example, wei or protective qi, or protective qi guards the body against external pathogens. And there's lots of those. There's ying or nutritive qi, um, which, is, which nourishes the body. And then, uh, so, you know, there's, there's all these sort of, and, and that's just a couple of them. There's a lot of different types of qi out there. And, and way too much that we can go into at this point. So let's take a step back from the question of what is qi and look at it from a different perspective. Qi is probably the biggest concept that Chinese medical skeptics target. They say there's no proof of its existence. They say it makes acupuncture in Chinese medicine an energy medicine. And they say that anything based on such a mystical, mythical energy is clearly just a scam and can't really support any actual medical interventions. 
I want to tackle these concerns. Not as a way to silence your skeptics, because that is not going to happen. It's just not. But to help understand other aspects of qi. For those that say there's no proof of qi's existence, I disagree. There may not be scientific proof, but if one meditates and practices tai chi or qigong, or even yoga with um, you know, the concept of prana, which is, is pretty much the similar concept to qi, they will feel qi in time. You will feel it circulating. You will feel your ability to move it uh, if, you, if you do this. I had, a, I had a friend when I was going through Chinese medical school, a, a really close friend. He was in engineering school at the time. And uh, we're, we're both you know, very straightforward. And he, he looked at me and he's like, you know I don't believe in any of that crap you do. And I, I said to him, I said, I know. But if you do exactly what I tell you to do for the next year, you know, a few minutes a day, you will believe. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. I said, I know you wouldn't. But if you did, I walked away. And that was the end of our conversation. I can't, you can't change a skeptic's mind. What I can tell you is now, mm, 25, 30 years later, he's asking me for medical advice and, and asking for some help. So everything kind of comes around. So. And, I w and, and the other thing about this is even if there is no med scientific medical proof, I would say... There is no scientific proof yet. We just need to figure out how to detect and or measure it. In other words, we're still trying to figure out what it might, might not be from a, from a scientific Chinese, uh, from a scientific biomedical point of view. We're not there yet. That's fine. That's how science works is we find a phenomenon and then we try to figure out what's causing it. And that's kind of where I feel like <coughs> we are with this concept of qi. So, yeah, we don't have scientific proof for it today. Uh, but I've, I, who knows about tomorrow? So. As explained earlier, qi is not energy, and therefore Chinese medicine is not an energetic medicine. I, I feel very strongly about this. And I know a lot of outsiders will say acupuncture is an energetic medicine. I, maybe not Chinese medicine in total, but, but acupuncture is, is an energetic medicine. I, I vehemently disagree with that. I do not agree with that. However... There are practitioners who do believe it is an energetic medicine. I disagree with this and think it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what qi is uh, because they've heard so many interpretations saying qi is energy, qi is energy, and it's energetic, not energy. But I love a good debate. So feel free to disagree with my disagreement, and maybe we can both come to a better understanding of what's going on. So I'm, I'm open to the conversation, absolutely. So I have strong feelings, but I love having them challenged. And finally, the argument that this is a mystical, mythical energy. Um, so my journey into Chinese medicine, having a scientific mind and training, is to find it to be very scientific. But it uses different concepts and worldview. But as I said earlier, it is internally coherent and testable. If I say, well, if I do this, um, according to qi theory, this is what's going to happen. And then that is what happened. If one looks at qi as a concept and not necessarily a literal manifestation, it puts a lot of phenomena into perspective and allows for beneficial manipulation of those phenomena. In other words, if you just shift your, your view a little bit, it actually connects dots and answers questions that are not answerable not without using some sort of concept like qi. So what I'm saying is, I think it's very scientific. 
in in the way it's 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 done and the way it's used. And I think that's where I land to a certain degree. When I'm thinking in terms of Chinese medicine, she is real and able to be able to be manipulated to help my patients. When I'm thinking in a more biomedical way, I still think she is real and useful, but maybe more as a useful concept rather than an actual substance. And frankly, that is possibly very Taoist of me to hold two somewhat competing thoughts in my mind at the same time. If you get into Taoism, you'll find paradoxes are really important in, in the concept of Taoism. So, I, you know, I think that's where we, we do this. There are no direct answers to any of this stuff at this point. But I think it's a super important concept. I'm not minimizing the concept of qi in any way, shape, or form. I'm a firm believer of it. But I also, I'm not one to take things on faith, and I don't think qi necessitates the under believing in the concept of qi is not a, a, a faith-based activity. I think you can, as I said, you can feel it. I have trained for many, many years in martial arts in Taiji Qigong, and yes, I absolutely can feel it in, in my body, and I can manipulate it. Uh, to a certain extent, nowhere near as much as my teacher, and I, I really need to keep, <laughs> I need to get back on the, the Qigong Taiji and, and meditation bandwagon again, but I absolutely have felt it and believe that it is a actual force, and that's where I'm going to end on our discussion of Qi. Thank you. Now we shift gears. We're going to talk about how to use formulas, because we've talked about formulas, uh, and, and up to this point in our in our podcast we have introduced several formulas and given some cursory approaches approaches to taking them kind of saying like this is how it's traditionally done or what have you but nothing mer majorly in depth but now we're going to take a deep dive into different ways to take an herbal formula and the pros and cons of each of that but before we begin let's have a little discussion about why we even use herbal formulas in chinese medicine as opposed to the Western herbal approach of single or double herbs. In Chinese medicine, we say everything has yin and yang aspects, including herbs. In other words, there are positive, helpful, and negative, harmful aspects of each individual herb. There's very few herbs that would be considered wholly safe. In fact, I would say none. Um, the, the, the example I always give here is water. We think you know water is necessary for life. Everyone needs to drink lots of water. It's super important. And I don't think most people realize if you take too much water, you can die. There have been deaths from water poisoning. So no matter how important and beneficial and, and helpful a, a substance is, it, it's about dosing. And at certain doses, everything is harmful. So um, I think when we, we look at herbs, we, we, we kind of, as a, in, a, in a Chinese approach, Chinese medical approach, we realize that inherently that every herb has positive and negative to it. We try to combine herbs to maximize the therapeutic effect we are trying to accomplish and minimize any potential toxic effects. We also combine them into formulas to give target effect, targeted effects for an individual rather than a generic approach. A saying in our field is treat the individual, not the disease. So in other words, just because someone has a cold, which we don't use, we use more specific terminology in Chinese medicine, but let's just say someone has a cold, it doesn't mean we give them the off-the-shelf cold medicine and say, here, this will help you. No, we say, okay, what are your symptoms? Let's 
create a formula that's very targeted for you, for your constitution, for your symptoms, for what you are experiencing. That's a really important concept in Chinese medicine. So our, our first method of taking an herbal formula is amongst the most traditional approaches, and that is decocting the formula. A decoction, or tang ji, ji, is a water extraction performed by boiling raw herbs, draining them, and drinking the resulting fluid. Instructions as to how, to how this is done and certain modifications may differ based on practitioner training and individual herbs involved. So for example, some herbs need to be boiled for a long time to extract their ingredients, while others, especially those with volatile oils, need a very short boiling period. Some need uh, no boiling at all. You just put them in, like there are some, some gels that we, you know, some um, gels that we use and you just mix them in at the end. You know, there's lots of different, there's several different approaches to these things. Some, you know, some of our herbs have spikes and stuff and we don't want them floating around, so we package them up. There's lots of different approaches. It all depends on how we're, we're uh, what the individual formula is and the ingredients. When I prescribe a decoction, which is fairly rare these days, I will recommend a patient starts with washing and draining the herbs, putting them in a pot with enough water to cover them by an inch or so, um, boiling them for 20 minutes, draining off the fluid, repeating the process by boiling them for 30 minutes, so you add more water and boil them again for 30 minutes, a little bit longer, and combining the drained fluids. That way you get all the material out of the herbs that you possibly can. And so they all come to um, both the first boiling and the second boiling. The fluids come together after they're drained. You split these fluids into fourths and drink one-fourth of the total twice a day. So one um, boilage of an herbal packet would last for two days. Decoctions tend to be a strong way to take formulas, especially for more acute conditions that are eat and, and, and um, they are easily modified. So the the uh, formulas themselves, it allows for easy modification of the formula. Drawbacks include the smell of cooking. I can't tell you how many of my patients say my husband hates the smell or my wife hates the smell. Um, the taste, it can take, some of these formulas are really bad tasting and it's really difficult to get the, the fluids down. The difficulty in time of preparation, if you don't cook normally, this is not something you're going to do on a regular basis. And not to mention the practitioner storage considerations for us. To have raw herbs, there's a lot of storage considerations. They take up a lot of space if you have a decent size formu uh, formulary, which you need in order to do this effectively. And they spoil, and they have bugs, and so there's lots of, of storage considerations for practitioners. Uh, relatively speaking, the herb, this is one of the cheaper ways to do herbs, um, but it is, it is uh, definitely uh, an issue for storage and everything for practitioners. Most of the herbs I prescribe these days are generally prepared and packaged as capsules, and that's our next topic is pills and capsules. Some may call these patent medicines, which is a good translation from the Chinese, though I prefer using the term prepared medicines based on the unique American history that patent medicines were sold in the days before the pharmaceutical industry and oversight were initiated. And... These patent medicines in our history were generally scams, and patent medicines historically in the United States means sham, unproven, and or harmful concoctions. In other words, the term has very negative connotation in our history. Do How many people know that history? Not many, but some of the targets of our, of our um, lobbying efforts, like doctors and government officials, 
probably know something of that history. And so it kind of hampers us, I think, as a profession to call them uh, patent medicines, at least in the United States. Elsewhere, that's, I, I don't know. So generally, I use, I initially use prepared medicines of traditional formulas in the form of capsules made up of encapsulated granules, which we're going to talk about soon. We're going to talk about granules. But this form of pills, quite a modern approach to pills. Historically, pills or Juan G are a very traditional approach to taking herbal formulas with many different ways to produce them. Generally, finely ground or pulverized herbs are mixed with a liquid or other viscous substance and formed into round pills. Common fluids used to form these pills include honey and water. Honey pills are a very traditional form of, of making pills in uh, Chinese medicine. Sometimes they can be compressed with little or minimal excipient. An excipient is a non-therapeutic additive that helps another aspect of the pill, such as aesthetics, binding, absorption, or preservation, among other possibilities. So the, the key thing about an excipient is it's not herbal, it's not therapeutic, but it's there to kind of help some aspect of what's going on with the, or, or sometimes it doesn't do anything. It's just there to add some bulk uh, so that it's more easy to manipulate. Uh, it still has a beneficial aspect, I guess, but it's a little bit different. Generally, pills, unless fresh, are, self, are shelf stable and can be easily stored and ingested and are great for chronic conditions or for first aid. I like this first aid thing. I, I've, I'm, I'm, you know, I have a, a, a CU and I've I'm, uh, written a book on, on first aid uses of Chinese medicine. And so I think that's really, I think all of us should have a certain set of Chinese medicine in our, in our cupboard for first aid purposes, things that stop bleeding, help with colds, things along those lines. And having them in pill form is a great way to do it. Drawbacks, though, include variable quality. So there's um, manufacturers of really questionable quality and some of very high quality. And sometimes it's very difficult to tell the difference without experience in use, uh, using them. Uh, there's variability in costs as well. Some are very cheap. Uh, they think you get what you pay for. And some can be very expensive in this, in this context. And the inability to easily customize a formula. If I have a patient that I want to do something very specific for them, I cannot do that using pills. I might be able to. One of the ways we do do that is combine whole formulas. We can give two or three formulas, even a variable dosaging, in order to kind of make it a little bit more individual. But that's a lot of herbal product and, and often is, is, is expensive, though it usually works out. Like if I'm doing that, um, I'm kind of doing the same dose. So the cost is the same, but they have to buy three of them all at once. So there's a big upfront cost, but they're using a little bit less of each of them over time. So it usually works out, but it's a big upfront sort of thing. And, 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 and that's not a true customization of a formula. So that's difficult to customize a formula. There are many traditional forms of pills, including pills made with honey, as I mentioned, Mi Huan. Um, sesame oil and beeswax may sometimes be added, and these pills tend to be moist and lubricating and honey can harmonize other herbs and is tonifying. So again, very traditional way of making pills historically. Pills made with liquids or shui wan. The liquid used is often water, wine, vinegar, or a strained decoction. So you can actually cook up the herbs and then use the, the decoction to make pills, you know, to add this water to make a pill. These tend to be small and easy to swallow and digest. Pills can be made with pastes. These are hu wan. The paste is usually made from rice or wheat flour, 
and these pills are thought to take longer to digest, prolongs the effects, and reduces gastrointestinal irritation. I should, I, I usually will warn people at some point that my Chinese pronunciation is not very good, so I apologize for it. I'm not a native speaker, and I'm just trying to do my best. I'm, I think I'm, I'm better than a lot of people and not as good as I should be So, uh, with my Chinese pronunciation. So I, I always like to say, give me a little bit of a break, hopefully. <laughs> so. Uh, another pills, uh, pills can be made from concentrates. These are nong suo wan. These are made from a concentrate or the dregs of a decoction and have a relatively large amount of the active ingredients. So you're, you're concentrating them so there's more in it in the same space. Uh, similar to pills and capsules are tablets or um, PNG. These two main types, there are two... Two main types of tablets. The first is an extract of the herb, adding in a filler and possibly other excipients and forming them into a tablet with high pressure. And the second does not use an extract, but just finely ground herbs. So that's not going to be as strong as an extract. Where an extract, uh, by its very definition, is, is extracting certain aspects of it and strengthening those aspects. All right, let's move into granules. Another very common modern method of using formulas is in the form of granules or chong fu ji. Granules are usually water extracts, decoctions that are then concentrated and dehydrated, so all the water is taken out of them, and then sprayed on an excipient like dextrin, potato starch, or even desiccated herb dregs. So you can have those dregs that after the decoction, after everything's been extracted from them, um, what they will sometimes do is dry those out and then chop them up uh, as a fine powder and use them as an excipient here. And this, all of these, they help to make them shelf-stable. They have other aspects to them as too, and other rationales for using them, but um, that's one of the big reasons is to help make them shelf-stable. And when I say shelf-stable, that means you can put them on the shelf for a, a, an extended period of time, unlike fresh things, which will, will go bad. Um, sometimes in the processing of granules, volatile oils and other non-water extracted substances from the herb are also back in, so they will have... Like the volatile oils will steam off in the cooking process, but they can be recaptured and then added in at the end of the process. It still has some of the volatile oils in it. Ultimately, this produces a concentrated, self-stable product that is easy to store, mix, and use. I like to call them Folgers crystals of herbs. Uh, they're, they're sort of freeze-dried herbs at, the, at some level. Not quite freeze-dried, um, but they're certainly... Uh, doing things similar to freeze-drying. This is the form of herbs I generally use when I make a custom formula. Ideally, I'll find a whole formula granule and add in other single herb granules, though often I create a formula from individual herb granules. So the, the reason why I, I try to do a whole, full, whole formula granule is there may be an advantage to whole formulas versus using individual herbs to make a, a, the same type of formula. And that's because there's some thought that there's some synergy that happens when herbs are cooked together. Uh, that doesn't happen if they're cooked individually. Um, I've seen some studies that, that lend some scientific support to that, but I think a lot more evidence needs to to be present before we can say that definitively. Though I will say in my private practice, I have seen that to be for the most part true. Like a, at one point I was given an herbal formula, ran out of that herbal formula, that whole herbal formula, and um, traded out 
made the exact same formula, but from individual herbs. And I had several patients who were on it tell me, did you change my formula when it wasn't, it was exactly the same formula, just one was made with individual herbs and one was made with a, um, a formula that had been cooked together. So I, I tend to believe this is the case, but the evidence is still, there's some evidence, but I don't think it's super strong yet. After I mixed together this, this formula, they can be taken as granules directly. They be, can be reconstituted into a tea, so you can add some hot water and uh, get it to, uh, to uh, go into the water, or even encapsulated. I, I do that a lot, at least personally, because I've tasted everything and I'm kind of over all the tastes, and I take them every day. So um, I like to encapsulate my, my granules for, me per, for myself personally. So I have a nice custom formula, and I encapsulate them, and I take capsules in the morning. The advantages for the practitioner include easy storage and usage and the ability to make customized formula with relative ease. And this is even easier, I think, than using raw herbs in a decoction form. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Advantages for the patient include relatively easy dosing and ingestion, and disadvantages include taste and cost. This, this can be a very costly um, product, and um, while it's, it's relatively shelf-stable, they can still go off, and so uh, practitioners can lose money in inventory and things along those lines. So it can be it can be expensive process. Another issue that um, is here is all granules are hydroscopic, meaning they absorb water. So once exposed to air, a bottle is opened, they start to go bad. In other words, spoilage is a concern, and a somewhat high volume herbal pharmacy is necessary to avoid this spoilage. Uh, you know, after you open it, you still have time. It's not like, you know, tomorrow they go bad. It, it can take a couple months, but still, it, it, the clock is ticking. However, a relatively new manufacturer of, of granules includes actually a screw-on type that has a, a top to the bottle that has a desiccant in it to minimize this, this process. And, I, and I've, I've been um, going over, as I reorder herbs, I've been trying to buy them more from this one manufacturer and, and find it to be a really good solution for this. All right, moving on. Another very common form of taking formulas is a tincture. Traditionally, these were made by, we're talking about medicine wines and tinctures right now. They're kind of very similar. Traditionally, these were made by soaking herbs in a rice or sorghum wine, using the alcohol as a solvent to form medicinal wines or joji or yao, yao jiu. This is probably the original, most traditional form of taking herbs as the character for medicine, the ziao word that I just mentioned uh, in Chinese actually includes the radical for wine. So it has the picture of wine as part of the character itself. So in other words, the, I, the concept of medicine in Chinese is, is actually involves wine at some level. So I think it's this preparation. I think it's very traditional, maybe probably the most traditional approach to this. Today, manufacturers won't use wine. Um, it's expensive and you don't need to, but some other effective form of alcohol to make a tincture. So, um, you know, if you're making tinctures out of your home, like a home herbalist, you know, a, a small herbalist would do, um, they will often use vodka or something along those lines. But any form of, of uh, you know, uh, ethanol will work. Tinctures can be used externally as a liniment or taken internally. Advantages of this form of taking herbs is relatively e relative ease of taking, easy storage, and shelf stability. These things can last for years. I mean, alcohol is a perfect preservative. 
Disadvantages include a relatively low extraction ratio, meaning more of the tincture needs to be ingested to get a similar dose of other methods. Taste, you know, some people don't like the alcohol taste, and it's certainly, while you're taking a lot less of that herb taste, it's still there, um, so taste is still an issue. Alcohol can be an issue with some addicts, you know, alcoholics. I've had lots of alcohol people who are recovering alcoholics say, I cannot do it. And cost, um, tinctures do tend to... Uh, be a bit more expensive. Even with a lower dose in them, I find them to be uh, a lot more expensive than other alternatives. So. Powders. Another common form of, of using formulas, at least traditionally, is powders or sanji. Uh, these are finely or coarsely ground herbs that can be ingested or externally applied. They're also used as drafts or zhu san. This is a is boiling the powder for a short time with a small amount of water and drinking the liquid. So that's a draft. They can also be blown into the nose or throat for treating vocal conditions for, for patients in a coma. There's a, an over-the-counter um, common, uh, relatively common herbal formula called superior sore throat powder. And all it is is a powder of herbs and you're supposed to uh, breathe in heavily as you squeeze the bottle and have the powder spray into the back of your throat. So that would be an example of this. Soft extracts uh, or um, gao ji is a category of preparation where the herbs are simmered with water or oil until a gummy or syrup-like consistency is created. This can be used externally to treat skin disorders or trauma. Internally, they can be made into three common forms. These include syrups from prolonged decoction or jian gao. Sorry, jian gao. This involves repeated decocting and concentration and a final cooking with honey or sugar to form a syrup or gel-like extract. Liquid extractions or liu jin gao. This is where the herbs are soaked in a solvent, usually alcohol, and then heating the extraction to reduce the amount of solvent. This creates a liquid concentrate of the herb similar to but with less alcohol than a, a tincture. So this would be like another step of processing beyond a tincture, so less alcohol. And then the third form is a semi-solid extractor, jin gao. This is the same as the previous liquid extraction with the exception of heating it until all of the solvent is gone. This can then be formed into tablets, pills, or put into capsules. So that's a another type of this soft extract. No longer soft at that point. Syrups. Syrups are tang jiang ji are kind of a combination of decoction and soft extract with liquid from a decoction has cane sugar added and then cooked for a long time to form a sweet syrup useful for treating children or for chronic disorders. So if you have to, if you have a chronic disorder you're going to be taking something for a very long period of time. You want to have it in a form that you can continue to ingest it, which is, you know, I'm not a big fan of like decoctions for chronic disorders because it just takes so much to make a decoction and and uh, the taste is just, I've never had a patient do that long-term. Um, and and then I'll have other factors, well, that's because of the way you're presenting it. And I'm like, all right, that's fair, but I wouldn't want to take it long-term either. So let's figure out other ways to do it. <laughs> so there you go. Other forms, lozenges or dingji. Um, powdered herbs are formed into tablets, sometimes with an excipient such as paste or honey. To use the lozenge is ground into a thick liquid 
and taken internally or applied externally. So this is a little bit different. When we think lozenges, we kind of think cough lozenges. This is a little bit different. It's a more traditional approach. Again, not used very commonly in, in modern practice, at least in the United States. Another one that's not used very commonly in the United States. So there are a handful, of, like a handful, maybe even less than a handful, like I think there's three or four states, is our injections or, or GNG. Many herbs can be extracted using modern methods and quality control, so they can be used for injections, whether they are subcutaneous or just under the skin, intramuscular into the muscle, or intravenous into the vein itself. So um, that is a form of doing this. It is used in many parts of the world, uh, and, and maybe in your part of the world. In the United States, there are a handful of, of states that actually allow this, uh, but most states do not allow injection. So, and, and, and even those states that do, there aren't a lot of practitioners, I think, that do them. Um, so it's a relatively rare form of using uh, formulas, but we need to at least mention it here. There are also lots of ways to, to prepare herbal formulas for external use or, um, you know, the, that can be used for any sort of external conditions. There are many forms of external preparations, many of which we have already discussed, including aqueous solutions, powders, suspensions, steeps, tinctures, oils, emulsions, rubs, ointments, dressings, plasters, and fumigations. I love fumigations. Actually, I don't think we, we really talk about it, and I've never used it. When I say I love it, I love the concept of a fumigation. A fumigation is where you actually, it's usually something affecting the, the genital region, uh, not necessarily exclusively, but more often than not, that's where I've seen it. I've, I've read about it being used. And you actually put a formula of herbs together and you light them on fire. And so the smoke is, and then you squat over it and let the smoke um, go to where it needs to do its, its work. That's a fumigation. We're going to talk about the others. I don't think I, I, I mentioned fumigations. And I, I find it fascinating. Not something, like I said, I've never done, never recommended, but I've, I've read about. So external preparations include the therapeutic ingredients as well as substances used as a delivery vehicle or base for their application. And that becomes important with the external. We'll see that um, we often use a lot of substances uh, as a delivery vehicle. Aqueous solutions. There are two types of aqueous solutions, steeps and decoctions. Steeps are prepared by immersing and soaking the ingredients in water and can be used with or without filtering the solution. Um, usually this, this doesn't necessarily include boiling the water. That's sort of the difference between a steep and a decoction. And a, a decoction, as we mentioned, are prepared by boiling the ingredients in water. So that's the big difference. There's a little bit more vigorous extraction of the active ingredients with a decoction as opposed to a steep. These are classified into different types according to their usage. Uh, you can make them into washing and soaking preparations, including rinses, steam washes, Sitz baths, if you're not familiar with a sitz bath, that's S-I-T-Z. This is um, where you put sort of a therapeutic substance in a, in a, uh, in a bath or a tub, and then you, you soak. Um, uh, usually in this case, it, again, it's about genitalia, and you usually sit in it. Not that the sits, I don't think the sits means sit in it, but maybe it does. Um, but you, you, you do that. It's like a small little um, soak uh, tub that you soak in. There are soaks and wet compresses, so you put cloth and soak up these steeps and decoctions and put them over the area. There are lavage preparations. Lavage means um, cleaning, rinsing, and these include douches and enemas, uh, so you can use these as those. <coughs> you can use them as mouthwashes. 
um, direct topical application, and even eye drops. So a lot of these can be made into eye drops, aqueous solutions. Powders are also um, very frequently used externally, and there are several methods for this. They can be powdered directly over an affected area. There's a very common over-the-counter um, uh, uh, medicine, Chinese medicine, called Yunnan Baidao, which means white powder from Yunnan province. And it's great for stopping bleeding. And what you do is you just sprinkle the powder over the bleeding area and pat it in and it stops bleeding. So that would be a, a form of this. They can be applied to affected areas with various fresh herbs, such as ginger, shenjiang, or aloe, lu hui, or vegetables. So you can put over, um, you know, you can mix them in with these fresh vegetables, or you can actually put them over it and use the fresh vegetables over it. Uh, mixed to a paste with the fresh juice of a loofah, si guao, uh, portulaca, ma xian, or fresh Chinese cabbage, and apply to affected areas. You're making a paste using these substances. You mix powder with honey, vegetable oil, egg white is an interesting one, vinegar, alcohol, brown sugar dissolved in water. I've never seen that as, a, as an option, uh, but that is. Or cooled boiled water. Um, why would you use cooled boiled water? Because boiling would sterilize the water. So cooling it, you're just, you're just making sure the water isn't, doesn't have anything in it that might be harmful. There are infusion preparations. These are divided into wine infusion or tincture preparations and vinegar or soak preparations. In both types, the herbs are soaked in the liquid for at least seven days and used after the residue is removed. So um, you know, one of the ones that is common in, in Chinese medicine, there's something called detayao or hit medicine. And it's, it's often um, um, good martial arts schools will have their own detayaos that they do traditionally. And they're, they're often uh, going to be uh, soak pre preparations using alcohol at some level. And my teacher, um, he would not tell me the details. That's one of the top secrets, uh, though I could guess a lot of them. But uh, he, would, he would steep them for at least a year before it would be used. So, yeah. There are oil preparations. There are two main methods here. Mix herb powders into plant oils. You just mix them all in. Or you can steep herbs in vegetable oil and frying until charred, removing residues and adding bees or other type of wax. When you, when you add in beeswax, what you do is you, to oil, you actually start to make an, um, you can go from an more of an ointment um, and it can go even more solid depending on how much wax you add into it. Um, but it, it softens it and, and, and allows you to spread it. Uh, that's where the adding the bees or other type of wax can come into play here. can be used by applying directly to the affected area or by smearing on gauze and applying the gauze to the affected area. And what, what that would do is if you um, put it on the affected area, usually it'll, it'll stay there for a while or rub off or get absorbed and then it's done. With the gauze, it kind of is is a little bit longer term. It'll stay there for a little bit longer in a very directed um, sort of way. There are rub preparations. Rubs are slices of plant tubers rubbed directly on the affected area or herbal powders applied with a slice of tuber. Uh, what you do is you apply medicated powder to affected area with a slice of plant tuber or pedicle or mix herbal powder with oil to make a bolus, wrapping it in a piece of cloth and rub the affected areas until slightly moist. So I mean, if, if this is a little bit hard to picture, I, the one that I think of is aloe. Like, you know, you always hear you can break off a piece of the aloe and rub it directly on a sunburn or something along those lines. Um, that's the sort of thing that we're talking about here with a rub preparation. Ointments are prepared by grinding an herb 
or herbs into a fine powder and mixed, mixing it with a base to form a fine, smooth, evenly dispersed, semi-solid preparation. The base should be odorless, tasteless, shelf-stable. It should not be oily or cause irritation, and it should not change the properties of any of the ingredients. Traditionally, bases included lard, vegetable oil, honey, wine, Vaseline, vinegar, and lanolin. If you're not familiar with lanolin, this, that's, sheep's, that's the oil that comes off of sheep's wool. In modern day, Vaseline and lanolin are the most common. Lanolin is supposed to be very good for softening the skin, so um, that could be a good reason for using something like that if you have rough skin. But it is an animal product, and some people can be allergic to it, so you have to... Vaseline is, is generally much more neutral. And that's it. We've gone through using formulas at this point. I appreciate you guys hanging in there, and I always say that, hanging in there. There's no hanging in there. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, so that's it. So for this episode, in our next episode of Spurbs Herbs, we'll be looking at our first creepy crawly quote-unquote herb. In Chinese medicine, we do use insect and animal products for therapeutic purposes. Our next episode, we'll look at wugong or centipede and find out why it is used and what the science says about it. And of course, there will be something a little different about the episode, as there always is in an episode of Spurbs Herbs. So join us for our next unique episode of Spurbs Herbs. It should be really great, uh, a great uh, episode. We're going to do some interesting stuff. So thank you very much. Uh, as a reminder, when you buy from Amazon, please use the banner age ad on our homepage at SpurbsHerbs.com. If you liked this podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. That really helps us, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. And as always, you can get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com or at, or at our website at www.spurbsherbs.com. As usual, I have a bibliography. I realized I missed a couple of my, my cheese slides in there, so I'm going to update that. And there we go. Thank you very much for joining us. Spurbs Herbs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins, Rogers, Campbell.